welcome to Sellersburg United Methodist Church podcast, where we bring our mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world to you, wherever you are. We're going to continue our series today focused on Paul's metaphor of the armor of God. And we, we are to be ready and prepared, Paul says, for each and every moment as we live. And so we are to have joy and peace and love and rest in this life, but we're always living out these aspects of life in a world that's influenced by what Paul calls the powers. The powers are the spiritual presence that is all around us. It bends people toward greed and violence. It bends us toward self-obsession and power that, that serves ourselves or serves a group of people for themselves, only for their own people. The powers almost always work in a group of people who inevitably decide that they are somehow superior to other groups. Nations do this. If we're honest, churches do this. Families do this. Societies and cultures do this. The powers are present everywhere around us and even within us. We are in a life of faith in Jesus Christ, and we call ourselves disciples. The word disciple means that we are a student. We discipline ourselves after our teacher. We learn from our teacher. We are working to know, to do, and to be what the teacher knows and does and is. It's a lifelong process, this this whole life of discipleship. We begin the journey in our baptism. It's in that beginning that the Holy Spirit is given to us in this unique way by God through Jesus Christ to work in our hearts. This Holy Spirit is a holy power. There's the the powers around us of the world, and then there's the holy power within us through God. It helps us turn our obedience to the powers of greed and selfishness that we all have given ourselves to at one time or another, and we turn that into obedience to God, to trust God fully, to give every aspect of our lives to God. And we do this because we're confident that by doing so, we will have life with God right here and now, or what we call eternal life. Now, this is the message of the gospel. The message is that through Jesus Christ, the reigning presence of God is here now. We only need to repent or turn away from the life as we have known and served and trust in the presence of God's reigning presence here and now available to us. So last week we focused on the first part of the armor of God, the belt of truth, and today we we focus on the second part, which is the breastplate of justice. It's this armor of God, you see, that helps protect us from the powers. Living into the six realities that Paul uplifts guides us into the life that that God has in mind for every one of us. So justice. We talked about truth last week, and and this week we're going to talk about justice. Now, like truth, justice has a long, deep, and wide history in our Scripture. We use the word today. You hear it all the time. 
But even now, it, it carries a, a myriad of meanings that sometimes we're, not, we're, we're using the same word, we're just not meaning the same things. Justice is a highly valued characteristic in our culture. We recite a pledge of allegiance as Americans, which ends with the words, with liberty and justice for all. The liberty speaks to being liberated, unshackled, free from tyranny. Justice speaks of equity, free from systems that put people into shackles, free from systems that produce superiority versus inferiority. Justice is about fairness in every terms for all. And the Bible aligns with this type of thinking, too. And the Bible, justice equals righteousness. The word in both the Hebrew and the Greek, they're, they're the same words. Justice equals righteousness. So God's righteousness refers to God's justness. We are made righteous before God. Or another way to say it, we are justified from our wrongdoings because Jesus Christ became sin on our behalf so we could be made righteous, just, through him, Paul says to the church in Corinth. We live God's righteousness by embodying and living out God's justices. So, you with me? <laughs> Justice in Scripture can speak of a number of things. So, in Scripture, we find that in Deuteronomy... Justice refers to something that someone is entitled to, specifically what's owed to them. And so in Deuteronomy, of the 12 tribes that are established to be Israel, one of the tribes is set apart to be priests, the Levites. And they're to maintain the sacrificial system. So they're going to keep pure, ritually clean. They're going to do what needs to be done to keep things right with God through the act of worship, which means that they aren't like the other 11 tribes. They aren't out in the fields working. They're not working with animals. They're not building up their wealth. And so it spells out that the 11 tribes, since the, the one tribe is working on their behalf to establish and keep this relationship, that those 11 tribes should work on their behalf and share the wealth, take care of them, give them what they need, keep things fair. And so it's a work of justice. No one's left behind. Everything the community needs to thrive and maintain right relationship is upheld together, and all participate. Another one is maintaining a fair system of law. Now, we are familiar with this one. Situations had to be dealt with where conflict arose. People who were judges were expected to show zero favoritism or act in any self-benefit. We're supposed to judge fairly. But Scripture, and we find in the book of Judges that there were all sorts of judges that had their own form of justice, and they just keep messing it up and mess up more and more and more. And then there are the kings. They had their own form of justice. They were supposed to rule with fairness, take care of the people, but they usually dealt with their own well-being and their heirs' benefit first. And then there's supposed to be justness and justice and punishments Fairness, equality. And in the Old Testament, it's a tooth for a tooth. It speaks of a different kind. And the other form of justice is an ideal humanitarian society. What that means is the elimination of all systems which perpetuates a lack of equity and equality so that everyone has what they need. Now, all the prophets dealt with this problem of injustice in Israel. The widows, the orphans, the strangers... 
They are always uplifted and advocated for by the prophets because in their system, you needed a man and a man's name to establish your identity. I'm glad that that's changed today for the most part. I'm, 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 I'm glad it's changed, but it hasn't gone all the way it needs to go. But back then, you needed a man in your life, which a widow wouldn't have had, an orphan wouldn't have had, a stranger, an immigrant, a foreigner in the land would not have had an Israelite man's name to which they could claim their identity through. And so the prophets are like, look, you all are supposed to be looking after these vulnerable folks on the margins. The funny thing is, is there are these systems, and Jesus subverted all the systems of his day. Okay? So there were systems in place, but not, not upheld in a, in a just way. One of the systems was the temple system. So you, you maintained right relationship with God through the temple, through sacrifice. That was meant to keep things fair. Another system was the economic system of Rome, money, how things worked, taxes, etc. A third one was the familial system. So your family, again, the name, who you, who you claim your identity through, and then you took care of family first. That's a system that was in high regard in first century. And then finally, there's the shame-honor system, this culture that is really foreign to us. But the idea is that everything you do either brings shame or honor upon you and your family. And that's the ultimate, the ultimate system by which you operate. So what did Jesus do? He subverted these. So the temple system, instead of going to the temple and, and working through that system, he acknowledges how corrupt it is on multiple occasions. And we find that from the get-go, Jesus goes out to the Jordan River, goes out into the wilderness, well outside of this holy city and the holy temple. And, and instead, he receives a baptism of forgiveness from his camel hair-wearing second cousin, pouring water from a river which in the Bible symbolizes new creation, the Jordan. So he rejected the corrupted temple system. Now the economic system, he, he subverted that because he never has money on him. Anytime you see a passage in Scripture where he's dealing with money, the first thing he says is, someone give me a coin, because he never had it on him. He relied on the hospitality of strangers. He would go to whatever house welcomed him. He would sit at the table with whomever invited him to sit. Now, the familial system of his culture, Jesus subverted that by regarding the household of God over his own blood relatives. There's a scene where his brothers and his mother come to get him because they think he's out of his mind. <laughs> Seriously, they think he's crazy. And they, they come to get him. Jesus is in a house with people, the disciples, and they say, hey, Jesus, your mom and brothers are out here. They want to talk to you. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? Anyone who does the will of my Father, God, they are my mother and my brothers. It's a big deal. That was, that was a big taboo thing Jesus did. And finally, the shame and, and honor. You know, anyone that you connect with, you share their shame or their honor which is why he always got criticized because he was always hanging out with sinners, tax collectors. He, he touched people he shouldn't have. He kissed people he shouldn't have. He would eat with people he shouldn't have. He'd heal and welcome and love all people no matter what other labels people had given them. He doesn't see sinners or enemies. He sees fellow human beings, beloved, 
sacred children of God and rejects any other system by which people might define each other. Paul understands that God's reign, the kingdom, came through Jesus Christ. The ultimate system, the kingdom, has come. Jesus lived by God's rule and reign, not the rule and reign of any other system, not by the rule and reign of the powers which often impacted those systems. Paul uplifts this new kingdom reality to the church in Ephesus and beyond to us today. In chapter 5 of Ephesians, he compares the two realities, the kingdom versus the powers, by using the terms darkness and light. What he's saying is he's using the metaphor of the dawning day, the light of the new day. Before the sun comes up, you can look out your window and you can see the light over the horizon. You know the day's beginning. And he refers to this fulfillment of the kingdom, the coming of it through Christ, that look, the light is already rising through the crucifixion. The light has already begun to shine. The new day is dawning right now. But the darkness still exists. We haven't reached full dawn yet. So the old way of thinking about everything and everyone, all these systems, they're all passing away right now. And Paul says, look, we're not to live by the night because the new day is dawning. So be children of light. Live now as if the sun of the new day is straight over our heads so that the fullness of light is everywhere and darkness is extinguished in us how we live. He says, live now in the light because it's as good as already here. He says, wake up, sleeper. Get up from the dead. The church, we always struggle with falling asleep. We always struggle with succumbing to the darkness of the powers because the powers offer us things, offers us power, status, honor, wealth, same four things that are offered through the systems of Jesus' day. They're alive and well today. They just go by different names. They look different, but they're the same thing. If we are to be prepared as children of light to live into the full reign of God over our lives, God's system of justice, then we must live a life wide awake. We must cry out to God to wake us up. And I warn you, friends, if you you make that cry to God, God will answer that call. And we must seek God's calling and guidance. And then we respond when God calls upon us. So today there's lots of discussion around justice in our society and world. Different groups define it and seek it out in different ways. And the powers love to stoke the fire of division and side-taking. And so the powers will even use the discussion of justice to do this. It loves to put in our minds, to ask and to wonder, where do you stand? Are you with us or against us? What's your stance on racism? What's your stance on LGBTQ inclusion? What's your stance on etc.? The powers take this idea of justice, these discussions, and make us think that we're either all in or all out, completely right or completely wrong. Injustice has the ability to present itself as justice. And sometimes it's hard to know. We just finished a study this week online, is justice or just us? And there's a story told that I want to share with you from that study. 
And it, it regards a weight loss program, and it talks about a husband and a wife, and they both go to this weight loss camp. What they don't know is they're going to be split up and put into two different parts of the camp, and that the whole camp is a giant experiment to which they are the guinea pigs. And so one side of the camp has gym equipment, has healthy food, has people who want to lose weight, and has everything around the person to help them be in that mindset. That's where the wife goes. The husband goes to the other side of camp where all they cook is unhealthy food. There are people there who really don't want to lose weight, and there's no gym, there's no opportunity. But who do you think has success? After week one, they come back together. She's lost five pounds, and he's lost one or, or maybe gained one. And she thinks, well, that's strange. And then after week two, they come back. She's down 10 pounds, and he's gained three. And at that point, she starts to wonder, what, what are you doing? Are you not taking this seriously? You go to weeks three, four, five, and six, and she keeps losing. He keeps gaining. And she starts to think to herself, you don't even care about losing weight. What's your problem? You obviously aren't trying to make your life better. You obviously don't understand what it takes. You're not willing to do the work. She has no clue what he's dealing with. And he has no clue what she's dealing with. And so he starts to feel down on himself. What's wrong with me? She's able to do it. Why can't I? It's only when the light's turned on and they realize the system that they've been placed in that's stacked against him and stacked in favor of her. Could she struggle at losing weight? Well, sure she could, but, but the percentage is very low. Could he actually lose weight? Sure, but the percentage is low because that's not the way the system works. There are entire worlds of reality beyond our awareness. I don't know what you all have been through who are in this room. You don't know all I've been through. And if we started telling our stories, we'd have much to learn from one another. We could look out our windows in this community and know that there are complete worlds beyond our awareness. The cards are stacked against some folks right here in Sellersburg. And the cards are stacked in favor of others. I know the cards are stacked in my favor in a tremendous way. I know it. The more I've had the chance to connect with and share with and listen to people who live in a different reality than me, the more I learn about the impact of the powers around us. And I'll be honest, it's really hard to wake up. It means I have to face the fact that the cards are stacked in my favor. That's painful. I have to face the fact that they're stacked against others through no choice that they've made. It's just the system, and that's heartbreaking. And as much as it's painful and heartbreaking, this work is necessary. A world living in darkness, the darkness of night, has no reason to wake up. A world governed by the powers has nothing to gain by waking up. But friends, we are the church. We are the disciples. We must wake up. It's you and I who must take up the cross of Jesus Christ and enter into the same struggle of every single biblical story that we cherish. We must ourselves wake up and then allow the knowledge of the light of the new day to impact all that we do, all that we say, and all that we are. And we must prepare ourselves with deep and constant prayer. God, Abba, how do you see the world? God, how do you see my life? God, how do you see my choices? How do you see the people around me? God, what is your justice? 
hard. But the good news is we have the holy power, the Holy Spirit. The world has the powers of the air. We have the power of God, God's divine breath in our hearts, in our souls, in our mind, in our strength. And the Holy Spirit, friends, wakes us up to the glorious day of the Lord already dawning. And every moment we wake up more, we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. What will you see as you wake up? I'll tell you, friends, I cannot wait to find out. Together, as the church, the body of Christ, prepared, we become the very reign of God in flesh and blood, just as Jesus Christ was. Through us, everything will change. God's system will come and right the systems around us. God is calling. Are you willing to answer that call? Amen. We thank you for joining us today. And it is our hope that you have experienced the blessing of God through our time together. If you'd like to know more about our church community and its ministries, visit our website at sellersburgumc.com.